0: Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 23, which can be found on page 923 in your pew Bible. Please stand for the reading of God's word. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is God's word. And please remain standing uh, to sing hymn number 702, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord.
1: Well, if you are uh, new to Westgate, we're in the middle of a series looking at our core commitments as a congregation. We've been taking a fresh look at our vision as a church at what God's called us to and have been walking through. So what does that look like then to move toward that vision? And we're most of the way through that series. We have this morning and next week where we'll look at our last two core commitments. And then for Advent, we will step into the book of Habakkuk, which is not your typical Advent book, but yet captures the spirit of Advent in many ways in that it's a book of honest lament about the brokenness of the world we live in and longing for the Lord to answer and do something about it. And so that's where we're going into Advent And then come January, we will step into the book of Hebrews together as a congregation. So that's a snapshot of where we're going in the weeks and months ahead. But this morning, let's pray together as we look at Acts chapter 14 and uh, see what the Lord has to say to us here. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would hear it. We pray that you would give us ears to hear it, Lord, by your spirit. That you would ready our hearts to receive it, to be changed by it, to obey it, Lord, to love it, because we know that in loving and obeying your word, we are loving and obeying you, and that's what it's about, Lord. We want to know you, and so meet us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus tells a parable in Luke 15, what man of you... Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now Jesus' point here is that the wayward and the lost are not to be neglected or condemned from a safe distance, as the Pharisees and scribes with whom he was talking were apt to do, but they should be eagerly sought after and rejoiced over When they repent, they're not less valuable because of their sinful patterns or their sinful past. They are precious and vulnerable, and Christ delights to rescue them and make them his own. If only the Pharisees and scribes with whom Jesus is speaking would see their need for rescue, which is also kind of his point. But imagine if the man in the parable had at his disposal 10 friends who could help him go look for this one lost sheep, wouldn't it make sense to ask them for help? Or if you change it just a little bit, imagine instead of of just one lost sheep that 95 of them had escaped. How was one shepherd going to track down 95 sheep? It would be foolish not to ask for help in that situation, even to recruit and and train and, and send out others to help with the search and rescue efforts. You can cover a lot more territory in a lot less time, and now you've multiplied your careful oversight of the sheep when you find them. What would stop a shepherd in that situation, 95 lost sheep, what would stop a shepherd from asking for help. Maybe panic. You know, the, the situation's just too urgent, he can't even think about, you know, he doesn't have time to get help. He's just got to act. Or ignorance. I don't see why sending out others would be any more effective. Or pride. I can do it on my own. It's my responsibility. I, they, uh, they left under my watch. And I want all the credit when we throw the party later. Or fear. I don't know how to get help. What if if that fails? Not sure I want to share my operation. Or even apathy. It's just sheep. No big deal if we don't get them all home. There are no good reasons when faced with that kind of situation. 95 lost sheep for a shepherd not to look for or generate help in seeking them out. It would be foolish. But here's the situation we face in Massachusetts. Right now, there are approximately 95% of our population who are lost, who are wandering without Christ not connected to a gospel-preaching church, 95%. In Metro West Boston, which is where we are, and that's kind of a uh, hard area to define. It depends on which list you look at. But if you just look at the 28 or so towns where Westgate people live in, that would mean there are roughly 690,000 people Facing an eternity without Christ. Can one church really seek out that many people? Now, of course, we're not the only gospel preaching church in Metro West Boston. Praise God for that. Um, we love and enjoy partnering with other gospel-preaching churches in the area. When I say that word, gospel-preaching church, what I mean is a church who believes that the Bible is God's word and preaches that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. Uh, We're not the only one. We love and and value partnering together with other churches. We do that in several ways. But for the roughly 730,000 people in the 28 towns we live in, there are, by my count, about 71 gospel-preaching churches. That's less than one per 10,000 people. Of those 28 towns, four of them have zero gospel-preaching churches. Not a single church in the town that believes the Bible is God's word or preaches salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And that's for a population of 32,000 people among those four towns. Another five towns have just one gospel preaching church, serving a collective population of 85,000. Another nine towns have three or less gospel preaching churches per town who are attempting to reach 230,000 people collectively. And so if you think about it, the situation is dire. And when we think of it in terms of our vision, we want to see... Christ treasured above all things throughout Metro West Boston. There are simply not enough gospel preaching churches in Metro West Boston for that vision to become a reality. For Christ to be increasingly treasured above everything else in the lives of people. And so that means for our vision to become a reality... Church planting, investing in and helping start new churches in our area is an essential commitment that we need to make. Now, it's a little strange to talk about something being a core commitment when we've never really participated in it before. Uh, you know, we were a church plant 42 years ago. The young adults pastor at Park Street and a handful of young adults and college students, many of whom are still in this room right now, came out to Weston and met up with uh, Harry and Carol Azadian in their home and the Bible study that was happening there and, and that became Westgate Church. And so we were a church plant once upon a time, but we haven't participated in that since then. And so How is that a core commitment if it's not something we're doing? Well, this is what we would call a commitment of aspiration, a commitment of aspiration, something we aspire to do, something we believe strongly that we must be about, but we're not there yet. And I want to talk about this morning, what I want to talk about is why we must be about it, why this is so important the necessity of church planting in seeing Christ treasured throughout the Metro West. And I want us to see that it's not just because of our dire situation. It's not just strategic. It's also biblical. It's part of the Great Commission. And it's one of the most effective ways for an established church like Westgate to reach into new areas and new generations with the message and hope of the gospel. And so, if you're not still there, make your way to Acts chapter 14. We introduced this topic a couple of years ago in our Gospel for All of Life series, and I want to return to the same text that we looked at then, because I think it gives us one of the clearest pictures of why fulfilling the Great Commission is more than making individual disciples or even just growing existing churches. It also means establishing new churches wherever disciples are being made. And so the book of Acts uh, picks up the story of Jesus and his kingdom where the Gospels leave off. Remember, the Gospels, the four stories of Christ and and what he's done to establish that kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection, and they all end with this commission-sending The church out to make disciples of all nations. Acts tells us the early story of what that looked like as the apostles went out. Uh, And the way that the disciples fulfill this commission is not just by preaching the gospel and making individual disciples, but by planting churches, starting new churches wherever they went. Ed Stetzer writes that the earliest churches obeyed the Great Commission By planting new congregations to carry out the assignments of discipling, baptizing, and teaching that would begin the multiplication process of planting more and more churches. And you see that throughout the book of Acts. But especially, I want to look at chapters 13 and 14, which tell us Paul's first missionary journey uh, through Cyprus and Lucia and southern Galatia. But before we look at chapter 13, excuse me, 14, our text there, I want to look briefly at the beginning of chapter 13 where Paul's journey begins. I think that's informative to what he's actually doing and why. So look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Thus begins Paul's first missionary journey. But there's an interesting detail that we often overlook in that story. Notice the church that's sending Paul and Barnabas out. Which church is it? It's not the church in Jerusalem, but the church in Antioch. You have to stop and ask yourself, where did that church come from? When the book of Acts began, there was only the believers in Jerusalem. There was just one church, despite the Great Commission, that told them to go to all nations. It took a severe persecution in Jerusalem to shake the disciples out of their comfort zone and and get them to move outward. and Read about that in Acts chapter 8. And one of the results of that is what you might call the unintentional planting of the church in Antioch in Acts 11. Uh, They went to Antioch to escape Jerusalem. And the Lord moved there and birthed a new church while they were there. Now, in Acts 13, the same church is being led by the Holy Spirit to plant more churches, not unintentionally, but intentionally. Sending missionaries to cities where Christ is not yet named, seeking out these lost sheep for the sake of Christ. And that journey eventually brings Paul and Barnabas to a city named Lystra. uh, In chapter 14, And, and as Paul works a miracle... When they get there, uh, he heals uh, a crippled man so that he can walk again. When he does that, things get awkward really fast. I don't know if you remember that scene in Return of the Jedi where the Ewoks uh, think that C-3PO is a god and they start trying to worship him and stuff. That's basically what happens in Lystra here. The crowds see a miracle and they conclude among themselves that the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Chapter 14 Verse 11, and and so verse 12, Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words... They scarcely restrained the people from offering a sacrifice to them. But things quickly turn the other direction when Jewish opponents of Paul arrive and persuade the crowds, instead of worshiping them, that they should instead execute them. And so verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. It's not easy being a missionary, huh? But God is at work here. God is at work. Paul, his life, uh, God preserves Paul's life in, in what looks like a pretty miraculous recovery. He gets up. That same day goes back into the city, continues the work the next day. And when we come to verses 21 to 23, we see a nice summary of Paul's pattern of gospel ministry, his normal practice of gospel ministry, which involves the intentional planting of new churches. So he begins with evangelism, with preaching the gospel. Verse 21 when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. So so the very first thing he does when he shows up is announce the good news of Jesus. We talked about local outreach last week, uh, making Christ known through both our works, but especially our words. We have to explain who he is, what he did. That's what Paul does. He announces to the people that there is a God in heaven who made us, who loves us, who will judge us for our rebellion, but who sent his eternal son, Christ, to deal with that rebellion by taking it on to himself by rise, on the cross, by rising from the dead so that everyone who trusts in him, who turns away from false gods and from sin and wickedness and trusts in him, will have eternal life and become part of his family forever. Paul announces that gospel message. He pursues the lost sheep, but notice what he does next. Instead of like leaving a newfound lamb where he found it, you know, out in the open, scattered and helpless, he goes back through each city that he just ministered the gospel to, with the explicit purpose of encouraging new Christians and establishing a leadership structure among them. So he organizes these sheep that he's helped to find by preaching the gospel. He organizes them into flocks. He brings them into congregations instead of just isolated, independent sheep. So verse uh, 21 and 22, they return to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. He goes back to the cities he just came from, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. If you look at a map of Paul's first missionary journey, he could have taken a lot shorter route if he just wanted to get back to Antioch. There was a there was a straight line he could have he could have gone, but instead he takes the long route, visiting all of the cities where he had just seen people come to Christ, and, and in order to strengthen them and to uh, organize them, to gather them for instruction and oversight in the Lord. Those are his two goals. He wants to. He's not just interested in making as many converts as possible, as many Christians as possible. He wants to see them grow. He wants to see the long-term health and the multiplication of those believers. And so he goes back through the city, and, and the first thing again is gospel encouragement. Verse 22, he's strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The reality is that even as Paul's gathered the lost sheep into a new flock, that doesn't mean that there aren't still wolves who would love to devour them. So he's strengthening them to continue in the faith. Guard the gospel. Keep holding fast to the word of God. Um, There's no reason that that the same people who just stoned Paul won't show up one day and try and get rid of this new church. They need to understand that the gospel is not, live your best life now, no more suffering for me. It's that through many trials and tribulations, we'll enter the kingdom. It is a message of salvation from sin, reconciliation with God, and a hope that nothing in this world can destroy. So he encourages them in the faith, but he does more than that. He also establishes a leadership structure among them. He turns them into a new congregation, into a new church. Verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul goes through the city encouraging them, but then also designating certain men within each new congregation as elders and, and the role of an elder we as we see in places like acts 20 or first peter 5 or first timothy 3 the the role the job description of an elder is to shepherd the flock of god that's what they're called to do he sets up shepherds for each flock they're to know the flock to feed the flock with the word of God, to lead them according to the word of God, and to care for and protect them, to provide care and oversight. And so in establishing elders, Paul is entrusting, think about this, he's entrusting the care and oversight of each congregation to the congregation itself. Paul's not like this wandering bishop who retains authority over every church. He is like the scaffolding. You bring him in and you build the church, and then when it's built, you take it down and you go off to build something else. Meanwhile, that local church has then been entrusted to the care of elders within its own congregation. That's Paul's pattern of gospel ministry. Tim Keller summarizes, uh, Paul routinely organized his converts into churches in their own right. More than just loosely knit fellowships directly under his leadership, these churches had their own leadership and structure. When Paul began meeting with them, this is interesting, when Paul began meeting with them, they were called disciples, verse 22. But when he left them, they were known as churches, verse 23. To put it simply, the multiplication of churches is is as natural to the book of Acts as the multiplication of individual converts. So if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, that means we're talking about more than just seeing individuals come to Christ. It means growing existing churches, but also establishing new churches wherever disciples are being made. That's the pattern we see in the book of Acts. And so... If that's so clear, I hope it's clear, but if that's so clear, why does church planting feel so unnatural for so many churches today? If that's the pattern of the Great Commission, not just individuals but starting new churches, why? what is it that keeps churches from committing to planting new congregations, from recruiting raising up and sending out new churches to help with the search and rescue efforts in an area. It could be panic. You know, we're so busy and buried with all of the challenges right in front of us that we can't even think of something like that. It could be ignorance. We don't see the point or the need. We don't realize the biblical nature of church planting, in the Great Commission, or, or we're not aware of how strategic and effective it, it could be, it could be pride. We can do this on our own. We could do it on our own, and we want all the credit when Jesus throws the party later. It could be pride. It could be fear. It could be fear. We don't know how to do it. We're scared that if we try and it fails, that'll be awkward. And we're not sure if we want to share our operation. Or it could be apathy. Maybe we're just not that burdened to see the lost reached with the gospel of Christ. It's probably some combination of those factors in many churches. Though the largest one is typically fear. If you had to pick one of those five, usually fear is the one that trips us up the most. Church planting is scary. It's scary because it's so unknown, and there's so many risks and so many costs. And uh, Tim Keller outlines three Uh, critical mind shifts that a church has to go through in order for planting to become normal and natural for a church rather than sporadic and traumatic to the church. He says, first, you must be willing to give away resources and lose control of your money, members, and leaders. You want to kill a board meeting in one fell swoop, bring that up. You know, give away resources and lose control of your money members and leaders. You must be willing to give up some control of the shape of the ministry itself. You've got to give authority to the plant to carve its own pattern and path. Not just, well, we always did it this way over here. And three, you must be willing to care for the kingdom even more than for your own tribe care for the kingdom even more than your own tribe. That's hard. That's hard to think about. It's even harder to do than just to think about it. And, and when we think about it, we often ask our que- ourselves the question, is that really worth it? I mean, that seems like a traumatic experience to go through. Is that really worth it? Why not focus on churches that already exist? I mean, I see empty space in the pews here. So, so why not just focus there, or, or, or help other churches with, have room fill those up first? I mean, after all, won't a new church just take people away from, from churches that are already hurt, hurting and, and, and just weaken everyone? We kind of think of it as a market share picture. Can't established churches be effective in evangelism without needing to start a new one? Those are honest questions. And of course, the answer to the last question is absolutely. Established churches can and must be effective at reaching the lost and making disciples. Uh, leading people to Christ and connecting them with an existing church is just as essential to the Great Commission as starting new churches. So it's not to diminish that one. Planting new churches doesn't give a church like Westgate a pass on evangelism and discipleship. If we just start this church, we can kind of coast now. That's that's not how it works. We, too, have to go back to what we talked about the last few weeks of evangelism discipleship. But we would be arrogant to think that we're the only church God could use to reach Metro West Boston with the hope of Christ. Or even to think that the the current number of gospel-preaching churches in the Metro West, even if all of them were full, are capable of effectively reaching the current population with the gospel. We would be foolish to think that. Not if we want to see Christ treasured above all things throughout Metro West Boston, if we want the gospel of Jesus to permeate our neighborhoods, our culture, to permeate our schools, our workplaces, such that that Jesus gets more attention and more love and more glory than anything else, if we want that to be true, we need more gospel-preaching churches. We need a commitment to church planting. It is biblical and it is effective. The simple fact is that new churches are six to eight times more effective at reaching the unchurched than established churches. Two years ago, when we began talking about this, I mentioned my friend Jay Mudd, was starting a church in Natick called Milestone Church. And at that time, we mused out loud, what if Westgate sent a couple of people to go be part of that core team? And we had... Three people, uh, Jesse Mitchell and Nate and Stephanie Christ, who went from Westgate to go pe- be part of that core launch team. We, a new church started. We lost some people. Two years later, there are 120 people attending that church on average. 40% of them have never been part of a church before. 20% of them are coming back to church having left before. So we lost three people, right? Right? And look what the kingdom gained. Look what the kingdom gained. So so we have to be willing to think beyond ourselves, our label, whatever you want to call it. And there are lots of reasons that that church plants are more effective at reaching the unchurched. Uh, Focus and flexibility is a big part of that. But what this means for us is that church planting is an opportunity for an established church like Westgate to reach new people, new generations, and new areas with the gospel of Jesus. With the gospel of Jesus. It's not mutually exclusive to our own outreach efforts, but it is essential to the big picture of the vision if we really want to see Christ treasured above all things. If our goal is just to grow Westgate as big as we can get it, you know, then church planting is a bad idea. It's a bad strategy. But if our goal is to grow the kingdom, to advance the gospel, to see Christ treasured, church planting is essential. Again, to quote Keller, vigorous church planting is one of the best ways to renew the existing churches of a city as well as the single best way to grow the whole body of Christ in a city. So if we're serious about our vision, Christ treasured above all things throughout Metro West Boston, we need to see church planting not as a threat, but as a commitment. Not as a threat, but as a commitment. A commitment of faith, to trust God in letting go of our resources and our people and our control. A commitment to the kingdom, that we're more passionate about seeing the kingdom of God grow than we are seeing our own congregation grow. And a commitment to seek the lost through gospel partnerships beyond Westgate. We're part of a a big family. Ultimately, it's a commitment to Christ and His glory because it's His church and it's not ours, it's His church. His name, His glory, His gospel. And so what is this going to look like for Westgate? That's what, you know, now get to the point. What What, what is this all going to mean for us? I don't know yet. Uh, again, this is a commitment of aspiration. We don't have the answer yet, but we're committed to finding it out. And And essential to that will be the formation of a team to f- help figure that out. We've talked about some of these different teams we're forming. Of our eight core commitments, three of them need some special attention. And so we're forming teams uh, to help take a look at what does it look like. We talked about the local outreach development team last week. Uh, that's one of the areas we need some help in. And so we're pulling together people. And C.J. Godfrey's going to talk more about that next Sunday. And now he's on the hook, so... Uh, he's going to talk more about that next Sunday, um, the local outreach development team. But but it's an area where we need more focused attention at asking the Lord, what does this look like for this particular congregation at this time to, to do outreach in a, in a healthy and sustainable, realistic way? We need to do that with discipleship, and we need to do that with church planting. But we need to do it in that order. Um, because if we don't have a rhythm and pattern and, and not just aspiration but actual practice of evangelism and disciple making, we don't have a whole lot to reproduce in church planting. So we need to do it in that order. And so we start with outreach right now. When About the time they get done with their work, we'll launch the discipleship team. And then about the time they get done with their work, we'll launch the church planting team to go before the Lord and say, what does this look like for us? But once again, it doesn't mean we don't do anything until then. Uh, Growing our compassion for the lost. That's something you can do right now, right? Praying for the lost, praying for your neighbors, praying for areas that don't have uh, a strong gospel witness. We can start that today. Our commitment to seeking out lost sheep. The more we grow in our outreach and evangelism, the more ready we'll be to start new churches. Growing in personal discipleship, helping new believers and young believers believers grow up in the Lord, that's going to help us get ready to reproduce that work. And there are other ways that we can fuel this commitment in the meantime. We might consider uh, taking on a local church plant in financial support. Maybe that's something we should talk about at our annual meeting. Are there... there's Lots of great planting work happening right now. It's a really exciting time. Maybe we partner with one or two of those churches. Maybe we do, as we have now friends, I have a friend planting a church in Framingham. Maybe we prayerfully think, is there another couple families we could send to be part of that core team? It's a cost, but it's worth it for the kingdom. So there's lots of things we can begin to be doing already. But as always, the most powerful thing we can do is pray. God's the one who has to do this work. That's true for all of the ministry that we've talked about. It's just as true for church planting. To pray for the plants that are, that are underway. To pray for passion and wisdom for Westgate. To become a church planting church. To pray for the lost. That God would be pleased not only to reach men and women through the witness of Westgate, but through the witness of churches started by Westgate. Wouldn't that be awesome? That he might be treasured above all things. And you can start by praying with us tonight at 6.30 at our monthly Pray for the Mission Gathering. That's the topic for tonight. We're going to pray for existing church plants, and for areas that need them, and for us to become a church-planting church. That's our topic. Tonight, 630. Fulfilling the Great Commission is more than making individual disciples, more than growing existing churches. It also means establishing new churches wherever disciples are being made. And Christ will not be treasured above all things throughout Metro West Boston without more gospel-preaching churches. So we pray to that end. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Father, you love the lost. Lord, we confess that even the way that that we can say this morning that we are found is not that we found you, but that you found us. While we were running away from you, Lord, in sin and rebellion, you in your mercy sought us out, rescued us through the cross and resurrection, through faith and brought us home. God, we long for that, for more and more people. To know what true joy and hope looks like and feels like. To find relationship with you and with your people. To be rescued from our sin and its deadly consequences, to have the hope, the sure confidence of eternal life with you, Lord. The promise that you will make all things right in the end. Lord, we want that hope to spread. We want that love to spread. And we confess, as a congregation, we cannot do that on our own. So Lord, help us Become a church-planting church. Help us invest in new churches, strengthen them, start them, that your gospel would go forward. Even if nobody 200 years from now remembers the name Westgate Church, may people joyfully proclaim the name of Christ. May our investment be a small part of that story, Lord. It's your church and your kingdom and we pray that we would be willing and humble servants trusting you in unknown territory because you're worth it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.